Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. How do you seek to bring a big debate to town without talking to the mayor and police of the city? That's just a mind-boggling question. It's going to be the first thing we talk about on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Ranowski. Happy Wednesday. It is Wednesday, right? I've lost track. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Wednesday. It's July, in case you forgot what month it was. <laughs> Not for long. <laughs> I, I just, it's so sad that I've completely lose track of the days. Okay, let's get right to it. Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson has to keep the city safe when the first presidential debate is staged here in September. So did anyone involve him in bringing the debate to to Cleveland? Did anybody invite Frank Jackson to help in the planning? Chris Arnowski, the answer to this is a shocker. Let's talk about it. Well, the short answer is no. And, and, And so, yes, you know, yesterday when we started trying to sort of dig into some of the logistical issues that surround hosting a presidential debate. Bob Higgs and other reporters learned that the Jackson administration said that the city was informed of the efforts to bring it here, but that it wasn't involved in that effort. And just for the sake of posterity, let me let me read their statement. They said the city of Cleveland was informed that Cleveland Clinic and Case Western Reserve University were looking to host the first presidential debate and receive confirmation of the selection prior to the announcement. While we were informed, we were not a part of the planning process and refer all questions regarding the details to both the clinic and CWRU. So, so, let, so let's step back here for a second. I mean, look, I, I'm going to say on the front end, I hope this goes swimmingly. I hope it puts Cleveland in a great spotlight that they come, they leave, there's no unrest. But this year we have seen in city after city, including Cleveland, unrest. We had a protest Mm -hmm. May 30th that devolved into a riot in part, at least because of how the police visited munitions upon what was largely a peaceful crowd. So it's just that kind of a year. Portland has had nightly nightly battles between law enforcement and protesters. This will be a beacon to protesters. The, the first debate, the first meeting of Biden and uh, Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump, especially in a year where the conventions are much smaller. So the chances are we'll have protests. So if I'm bringing the debate, if I suddenly say, hey, Notre Dame doesn't want to debate. I'm the Cleveland Clinic. I'm big and huge and have a great building. I want it. How do you not go to the people whose job it is to keep the city secure and say, hey, what do you think? 
what should we be thinking of, you know, is, before we make this proposal, can we talk about how we're going to keep it safe? I just, I can't believe it. Right. And it's a, it's a tremendous expense to communities that are already kind of hurting because of, of the financial issues related to the pandemic that we're still dealing with. And, you know, we were, we were talking about this before the podcast started, you know, in a normal year, I think the reaction to something like this would be like, oh, cool, you know, this this historic thing is going to be happening in our city. And I can't think of a single person who was like that this time. It just felt like, oh, not like this now, now this. And so, you know, I mean, there's there's a certain amount of pride that goes with this. But, you know, when you think of of everything that's happening around the country right now, how divisive politics are, how kind of scary and pre-authoritarian things are getting in in some cities. It doesn't leave you feeling a lot of hope and optimism that this is going to be, you know, something that business people and and the community at large is going to benefit from. Well, look, look, if your case and you're the clinic and this thing goes south, that's on you now because you didn't involve the city just for your own self-preservation. You'd think you'd want to say Hey, Mayor Jackson. Hey, Chief Calvin Williams. What we're gonna? We want to really bring this. We think it could be good for the city. What's it going to take to keep it safe? Maybe offer some of your billions to help pay for it because the city's so strapped because of the coronavirus. But then that's the other element here. There's a coronavirus that is right. wreaking havoc on the country, and this thing, even if there's no audience, is is going to bring people here. Maybe journalists will cover it virtually. Maybe they won't come. You know, a lot of journalists are not traveling. But whoever does come from elsewhere risks bringing the coronavirus. Now, the Cleveland Clinic is an expert in this. They've been advising the debate about it. So maybe they've got that covered, although they haven't really explained that to anybody as yet. I just, with the coronavirus, with the social unrest, this is this just was a surprise that they were not talking to Jackson and Jackson's statement. You know, he doesn't say this is ridiculous. They didn't come talk to me. But just him putting out the statement basically says this is ridiculous that we were not involved in the planning. Well, and, and there's another thing that I think is worth talking about here, which is the fact that the clinic in Case Western didn't see the need to talk to the city. You know, I think we. You know, I think there's a lot of hometown pride when it comes to the clinic, but this also is illustrative of just how powerful the clinic is. The clinic, you know, the clinic has its own police department. The Case Western has its own police department. And so. Yeah, but neither of those police departments is in any way equipped to deal with what we saw May 30th. They're just. And so it's like, you know, they're making this kind of unilateral decision to be the host for this thing. You know, they seized on an opportunity when Notre Dame pulled out of this and, you know, unilaterally said, you know, Hey, let, let it be us. And then the city's just like, okay, okay. Uh, And, and, but it's, but the taxpayers are going to end up feeling the brunt of this, you know, whatever law enforcement presence exists here during that, it's going to be at the city's expense and at the federal government's expense. And, and so, you know, and, and then, you know, you're right. You you know, we have to consider the health, health aspect of this now. So, so let me let me close this out by with something somebody sent me on my subtext account, the text message account where I send out to people every day the stuff we're working on. <laughs> somebody sent me a note saying they realize that this medical building where they're going to have the debate is in Huff, right? 
And people realize we we once had a riot enough. There, I mean, the, the the people out there see the danger of what they're doing here. And yet it doesn't seem like the clinic in case did. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is the decision to allow daycare centers to return to normal capacity one of the most agonizing coronavirus decisions Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has made? Or Johnston, that was his statement yesterday. Daycares are... One of the most agonizing things he has dealt with, he's had pretty severe limits on capacity. He's been subsidizing daycares, but he made a pretty big announcement yesterday. Why is this so hard for him? I think because he's weighing the safety of Ohioans, including children, um, against the need to get Ohioans and like those kids' parents back to work. School's starting next month, although whether that's going to be in person is its own question. And DeWine realizes that working parents need someone to watch their kids. He said he would rather put more kids in childcare where professionals are trained in safety measures than have vulnerable grandparents taking care of these kids. So starting August 9th, it's the daycare's choice. They can either keep getting a state subsidy, which has been up to $30 million statewide since the pandemic started, or up the number of kids back to the regular allotted amount and um, go back to normal. There are a lot of people who argue that the daycare centers were never a danger, that the numbers have been low. And he did quote some numbers yesterday when Mm -hmm. you compare it to the total number of cases in the state. So there have been people that have been complaining for ages that by doing what you did with daycares, you made life a lot harder for working parents who are working from home and they can't they can't take care of their kids. What What did he have to say about that? I think he said that it was really safe. I guess there's been 442 people associated with daycares that have tested positive for the coronavirus. And then the state is actually taking part in this study, uh, multi-state study about the risk of COVID-19 in child care centers. So he says we'll get some more data from that. So he's he's not worried about the spread in daycare centers, and they have been really careful. We did a story early on where the ratios were down for six kids to one adults for the littlest kids and then nine to one for the other kids. They were putting kids in their own hula hoop to keep them separate from other kids. They were no longer sharing crayons, and obviously these uh, staff members were wearing masks. They were sanitizing everything. So in his mind, that's a better option for now. He the, said we the, thought, he thought we had the safest childcare in the country. Well, the other thing about daycare is for the people that are arguing in favor of opening schools, they use daycare as the reason that if if you've had very little transfer of the coronavirus at daycare centers, and you know, four hundred forty two was four hundred forty two, but relatively speaking, that's pretty small. Right. Then it's evidence that schools will be fine. So I get back to why is it so agonizing? I mean, it seems like this should be pretty simple. Okay. You know, we're we're not having a problem in daycares. Uh, it's inconveniencing parents all over the place. Let's open them. Why? Why is it? Well, so I mean, hard? it's it's so it's so interesting. I think we had comments on this yesterday that we're looking to shut down more things. There's this hint about bars coming on Thursday, and then we're opening up other sectors. So maybe it is really just smart management. We're looking at where the spread is and focusing on that, and where the spread is not, and opening that up a little bit. But we're going to talk about this more later, I'm sure. But schools might not be opening. So then to say, sure, go ahead with the daycare, it just seems like two different messages coming out of the same mouth. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who is the informant identified as individual number one in the charging documents that describe Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder 
as the mastermind of a $60 million first energy bribery and racketeering scheme. Cenk this was a, a bit of a surprise story. The, the unidentified informant identified himself on Tuesday, and it's he's got an interesting backstory. What is it? Yes, his name is Nick Owens. He's a Republican from Brown County in Southwest Ohio. He's a member of the State Board of Education. And this year he was running for a House seat uh, in Southwest Ohio, as I said. And he he outed himself as the person who he he called the FBI in mid-March to, to report what, what he considered to be campaign fi- finance violations you know, that were affecting his race for the House. So that was around the time that he and a few other Republican candidates who were running for these Southwest Ohio seats kind of took an unusual step and and held a news conference to decry all this dark money that was going into their races against them, you know, and in favor of candidates supported by Larry Householder. And they just thought there was illegal coordination going on, you know, with this this householder-aligned super PAC called Growth and Opportunity PAC. They, that PAC spent like hundreds of thousands of dollars in attack ads, you know, smearing these guys and, and supporting like two householder-backed candidates in, in these races. So that was his initial contact, you know, with the, with the FBI. And apparently he talked to an agent like through April and then really didn't hear anything until he ended up as individual one in the, in these uh, charging documents. But the, what he provided to them was that I guess back in, you know, when he was deciding to run for the house, he had a meeting with householder to kind of be screened, you know, for, for an endorsement. And apparently during that meeting, householder bragged about, you know, all this dark money he had put into another race in, in 2018 uh, to, to get his candidate to win. It was, it was like a narrow victory, but, you know, he spent like half a million bucks um, or directed the spending of half a million bucks from a dark money group, you know, to get this candidate over the top. And that's and, the key, right? That's where you cross the line, that you cannot be tied to the dark money fund. I mean, the, the, the federal document, goes overboard to show that Larry Householder was controlling dark money funds. And so this informant's utility for investigators was in making one of those linkages. Right, exactly. And then apparently, I think there were some there was some reference to the fact that they were able to independently corroborate some of this information that that Owens provided them. Just as kind of a little point of interest here, despite all that money, Householder ended up backing another candidate in this race, a guy named Alan Freeman, who ended up like coming in third out of the three candidates. Owens didn't win either. He came, he came in second, but um, I thought that was rather. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) we're going to be learning little bits and pieces of this for quite some time. And I do expect we'll see more filings by the feds now that they're doing investigations. So be interesting to see where it develops. You're listening to this week in the CLE Why is the Ohio Restaurant Association coming out with guns blazing to criticize Columbus for ordering bars closed at 10 p.m. each night? And is Governor Mike DeWine about to issue a statewide order about bars? Chris Ranowski, I think those two questions are very much tied together. What's going on in Columbus? So 
Um, there actually has been a development in this story that happened kind of late last night. Um, so just for background, uh, Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther uh, on Friday, and along with the city council, approved an ordinance that would force establishments to close daily by 10 p.m., an hour earlier than the closing time that the mayor had initially sort of proposed. And last night, a Franklin County judge put a hold on that order less than six hours before it was supposed to go in, into effect. The Columbus Dispatch is reporting that. You know, the, the reason they were doing this is because, you know, in part to help battle the coronavirus. So, you know, I, I think the, 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 the idea was is if we close earlier, people won't be as inebriated and, and less likely to sort of break the social distancing and mask wearing rules that we're being encouraged, politely encouraged to adhere to uh, when we're out in public and, and at bars and restaurants. So it would have continued to let businesses offer carry out and delivery after 10 o'clock. And, and there was a, a system of fines that were put in place uh, if, if these businesses were found in violation of closing of the closing order. So why are they so dead set opposed to closing at 10 each night? That's fairly late, but it sounds like they, they make a lot of sales after that hour. Yeah. That's the, probably the, the, the high money time for selling alcohol is, is those gremlin hours, those after midnight, those after midnight, uh, periods, uh, 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 you know, when, when people are, are drinking with more, uh, abandoned than usual to the, but, to your is, but is that why the, the, the health order then attack? I mean, if, are they basically saying that after 10 o'clock people get inebriated enough where they're, they're not taking precautions. Right. The yeah, virus that's, that's sort of what I was saying earlier is that, yeah. you know, is, you know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a, a graph somewhere that shows as, as your drinking increases, your responsibility decreases. And uh, that graph is pretty much all of human history, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So Mike DeWine hinted uh, in his Tuesday briefing, not a hint. He said he's going to have something to say about bars on Thursday. Although I guess this Columbus judge's uh, order might change that. When Mike DeWine hints at things like that, he usually comes through later with a new order. Are we expecting that he may make that a statewide order or a red county order or something of that nature? I mean, I don't, I don't know that a judge putting a temporary restraining order for 14 days on a city ordinance is, is going to really stop the governor from doing anything. I think, you know, we've, we've seen him mention this in the past that, you know, when he does make these decisions that, you know, part, part of it is with the understanding that they're going to have to litigate stuff. So, you know, I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I think our history, our brief history in dealing with the coronavirus and Mike DeWine had, had sort of shown that, you know, on Tuesday, he'll say, I'm going to address that on Thursday. And, you know, and that usually comes with, you know, more restrictions and some limitations on, you know, whatever the topic is of the day. So I or, you know, news of the day. So like we're reopening daycares or whatever. So I think, you know, I think we should anticipate something, what it looks like you know, how, how much teeth it has that remains to be seen. But, you know, I think, you know, we, he's pointed out, you know, especially since, you know, the 4th of July, you know, and, and the pictures that came out of put in Bay and all that stuff. I think he's shown a lot of patience and, and really has given the public a lot of benefit of the doubt for doing the right thing. But 
But he also has the contact tracing, and he knows exactly where it's spreading. I mean, he's been talking a lot about. Yeah, I mean, he gave like a really incredible breakdown of of just how, you know, how a virus spreads. But he hasn't. uh, But but he has not in his anecdotes talked about bars. So so if it is spreading in bars, he'll have to lay that case out Thursday. Yeah, and 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 look, I mean, the the restaurant association. You know, they're an incredibly influential lobbying group in this state. And and so are the alcohol. You know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of economic backing behind the business side of this. And and, you know, I mean, their testimony was really heard, I think, by lawmakers when, you know, they were trying to push for reopening. And 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 so, you know, I think we'll we've, see. Given, I mean, we've given, he'll, go he'll get up. I mean, tomorrow we'll see what he does. But. I think we can expect something pretty serious. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine basically end the state's county fair season this week? Lar Johnson, Mike DeWine, is a big fan of county fairs. He's talked about county fairs repeatedly in his briefings, but he took a pretty drastic decision on Tuesday by saying there's not going to be any county fairs after Friday. We'll just have junior fairs where kids show off cows. Although I guess there's still going to be a butter sculpture battle. What's going on? <laughs> yes, you can still uh, do a DIY butter cow instead of going to the state fair. But he did say that all state fairs, or sorry, county fairs starting Friday have to be just junior fairs because some fairs weren't being safe. He said it before, nobody loves a county fair like Mike DeWine, but he had seen photos on social media and in the news revealing that people were not social distancing, not even wearing their masks after he mandated masks throughout all of Ohio. And so he just didn't want to risk it. He said it, it it's not worth it. He pointed to uh, one fair that news reports point to as the Pickaway County Fair, where 19 people got coronavirus. And it's clear he he felt really bad about this. He had made sure each board had $50,000 to have a fair safely. And now he's saying, we're just going to do it for the kids. Is this part of that rural-urban divide, the conservative versus the liberal in Ohio, where in these rural places with fairs, people just are philosophically and politically politically opposed to wearing masks that compelled the the governor to make this decision. I mean, when we walk around in Cuyahoga County, you know, most people are wearing masks. You don't see this reckless abandon at gatherings like he's talking about in the county fairs. And I wonder if this is part of that political divide. Well, it's fascinating because Julie Washington went to the Lorain County Fair Board meeting on Monday night. And so this happened before the the fair shutdown from the governor and they were debating whether they should minimize to a junior fair. And the the fair takes place in Wellington. The county commissioners and the Wellington mayor, I believe, said we do not want a full fair. We do not want to deal with the implications of coronavirus spread. Lorraine has been a red county. And you had these people just up in arms. They had more than 100 people there. They had online petitions. This one guy said it's, quote, an American right to hold a fair. Um, They got into a heated exchange with an audience member. Um, He's saying, the mayor was saying, I I can't do this. And this guy said to the mayor, people die every day, mayor. The big word is if, but yes, I live my life that way. He's saying he was willing to put people's lives at risk for a fair. So people are diehard about this. That's that's, that's a, 
That's a big sacrifice for a funnel cake. Like that's <laughs> tractor pulls and a demolition derby. I mean, to some counties, this is this is it. This is the biggest event of the year. We're doomed. And then and then there is a butter sculpture battle going on, right? <laughs> There is. You can enter it. It's put on by the Dairy Farmer Association, um, and so you. There are we have it on our website. There are very specific rules about it, and you need at least two pounds of butter to compete. And there's going to be a competition to make your own butter cow. I don't know what the bigger evidence of our doom is: the right <laughs> to have a fair or a butter sculpture contest online. Can I, can I just say something? Oh, oh, go ahead, a Chris. A little wild that like. Four months ago, we were limiting butter purchases at Costco. <laughs> Never encouraging people to dump. <laughs> Come on, man. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> we're doomed. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the disconnect between Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Ohio State University when it comes to whether football games will be played this season and whether anyone could attend them if they were played? Jen Cahoon, there was kind of a gasp moment in the briefing yesterday when we all realized that Mike DeWine was unaware that Ohio State had announced its policy for football games, which was going to put 20,000 people in the stands. <laughs> so so he didn't quite like that, and he kind of asserted his authority to step in and change it. What happened? Yeah, I, I sort of couldn't believe this when when a reporter asked him whether he knew ahead of time about this, and he kind of took that you know, disappointed dad tone and said, I was not aware of this. And this is the the announcement by Ohio State that they're going to have up to 20,000 people attending football games. You know, the shoe holds a lot more than that. But the, I guess, um, you know, he, he said, well, well, he appreciated and he, and he understands how people love OSU football and he appreciated the need you know, to plan for these logistical issues, it's just too early for to know whether this is going to be feasible to have 20,000 people there. And, and he pointed out that it's, it's more than just a matter of 20,000 people, you know, spacing out in the seats at this stadium. It's like coming in and out, like, how are they going to handle that with people crunching together and so forth? And uh, and that is so the he, issue for, for games like that. It's Yeah, you can space out, but the entrances were never designed for social distancing. They're cattle shoots. And, and you know, and he also said that he has the authority and plans to right, have something right. to say. He made it, it clear that his office is... is is ultimately going to have the say on on what kind of attendance level is going to be safe at these events. Did OSU explain how it planned to get people in? I mean, 20,000 people, you know, that's bigger than a lot of the cities in Cuyahoga County. That's a lot of people to move in and out of that stadium. Did they have any explanation about how they're going to keep people safe when they do that? I didn't see the details on that if they if they did unveil that, like how you're going to prevent you know, with the ingress and egress and all that. Um, yeah, they, they, the, the answer is they did not. Uh, and they did say there'll be no tailgating, which, okay, but, you know, actually people are kind of spaced out at tailgating. <laughs> it's when they yeah. go into the stadium that it's a problem. Anyway, it was interesting. They made a mistake. They should have talked to the governor 
first. There's a whole lot of this going around. There, yeah. The Cleveland Clinic and Case Western Reserve University planned a presidential debate without <laughs> talking to the mayor. OSU is planning a football season without talking to the governor. Yeah, was- I don't think the governor was too involved in the debate thing either. I mean, he did know about it, but anyway. Yeah, I, I would imagine he's a little uncomfortable with that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did the Ohio Education Association throw a monkey wrench into all of the school reopening plans Tuesday with a request involving counties like Cuyahoga where the coronavirus is running rampant? Laura Johnson, we keep saying that the school reopening is not a closed issue, even though a lot of schools have made the announcements. It's it's a moving target. This this added to to that belief, right? Oh, yeah. This is changing every day. Uh, The union represents 122,000 teachers, faculty members, and support professionals uh, in K-12 through and higher education. And they're asking the state to say if if a county is purple or red in the state's coronavirus alert system, do not let schools open in person. Some schools have already decided to move to fully remote start to classes. Cleveland was one of the first. Akron, Columbus. I heard from my sister in a frantic text yesterday that all of Franklin County, um, according to their health department, cannot open their schools starting in the fall. So she's really upset about this. Um, It's just, it's, Teachers are not feeling safe. 69% of these education professionals told the union in mid-July they don't believe that they can reopen safely. Well, I, and the latest thing that's being discussed is you're hearing teachers talking about actually having a strike and not showing up. The Education Association basically weighing in to say what Cleveland said. You know, they're, they're basically saying Cleveland's not opening for nine weeks. You know, now Columbus isn't opening for nine weeks. Any red county shouldn't open. It adds to the growing debate. I know it's circulated like wildfire among teachers. So it's a it's another incremental step. There are districts that are throwing down saying, no, our plans are set. But I think the will of the parents and the teachers will continue to be to be a factor. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That's going to do it for this episode. Cranked through a lot of uh, a lot of news. It's been a newsy week this far. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. And thanks to everybody for listening to this week in the CLE. Mm-hmm.